they are fired up to get there and to make changes that they truly believe can happen. And they're starting to make me think that it could happen as well. How, I mean, I'm learning from them just as much as they're learning from me. A lot of it Mm -hmm. is about attitude. And so I get really emotional when I think about these students who all I'm doing is giving them some of the critical thinking skills and some of the facts that are necessary for them to go out and change the world and to make things actually happen. Hey friends, and welcome to the Modern Medusa podcast. friends, welcome back to the Modern Medusa podcast. This is your host, Dominique DeFalco of DeFalco Reptiles. This is episode 17, I think. I've gone back and recounted it and then I forget every single time. So just, you know, look at the title. Whatever that is, is probably what it is. So thank you so much for all your support. As always, just a friendly reminder, I do have a Patreon. You always get a heads up of who our current guests are, upcoming guests, and discounts to all of the merch if you join the Patreon, which is, the link is in the bio. So today I'm super excited to be talking with Dr. Emily Taylor. Um, Dr. Taylor is someone that I really look up to as a professional herpetologist. Um, She, I listened to the episode she did on Squamates um, a couple months ago and they discussed, I guess it wasn't a couple months ago, it's probably like a year ago now, but time doesn't really exist right now. It was uh, (laughs) discussing a project she did on female herpetologists and their presence in published works over the last like 50 to 75 years. So really excited to talk to her about that. Besides that, she's an incredible researcher, a professor, and then all around just a badass. So please welcome Dr. Emily Taylor. Hello, Dominique. Thanks for having me. Hello. I'm so happy to have you. Thanks for joining me tonight. You bet. Yeah, this is so fun. Um, I know you're like, it's like eight o'clock for me. I'm having my beer. I'm like ready to go for the evening, but I'm sure you have things to do after this. So thank you for doing this with me this evening. Yeah, you're most welcome. Just have to finish grading final exams. So this is way better talking oh, to a yeah. fellow so herper. M- maybe if you do have a beer, that'll help with that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the students would love it. The students would yeah. love for me to be having a beer while I grade their herpetology exams. Oh my gosh. So there's a herpetology exam. Well, first of all, so you are a professor at Cal Poly. And you're a herpetology professor and general biology professor? Yes, I teach all kinds of classes. And I was lucky enough to be able to teach in person for the first time in over a year, herpetology class. I argued that you can't really hold a snake over the internet, right? Yeah, no. (laughs) That successfully, we were safe and it was a great class. So now just some grading and off we go into the summer. Oh, that's so fun. I was living vicariously through your uh, Twitter posts of your field work with your students and like, what were you doing with those lizards? I kept seeing you like measuring something with lizards in your lab. Probably was, the evaporative water loss using that is new, exactly what it was. Yes. My new gadget. Yes. <laughs> what was that gadget? What were you doing with that? I am so excited about this. I swear I sleep with it under my pillow. Not really, but <laughs> might as well. It's called an evaporimeter and Mm -hmm. it's a pretty new technology. It's a handheld evaporative water loss measuring device. So you can hold it up to an animal's skin and it just tells you in real time how much water is moving across the skin. So 
traditionally hmm. studies on reptiles and amphibians and other wildlife, you'd have to put them in a chamber, you know, measure the water going in, measure the water going out to look at total water loss. But now we're able to actually hold it up to the skin and compare it on different parts of the body in real time. The animals aren't stressed. It's totally magical. So how do those results compare to like the traditional method? Is it pretty on par? Well, it's a little different because what we're looking at is the water loss across the skin in any one region of the body, not accounting mm-hmm. for how much they're losing by their breath or okay. you know that mm-hmm. sort of thing. So they're pretty kind of unprecedented. There's a few other labs that have them, but so far we've done, um, we've collected the data on Western fence lizards, blunt-nosed leopard lizards, and prairie rattlesnakes. And all the data Very makes cool. sense in terms of what you'd expect, but then there's a lot of things that you... We couldn't have possibly known thing, little things like, you know, the ventrum of a snake is more permeable than the dorsum, which makes sense, but their chin and their eyes are actually rather permeable to Hmm. water loss. So the the eyes, I could understand a bit, maybe not as much as snakes because they don't have the eyelids, but the chin, that is like not an area I would expect. I think there's a lot of potentially interesting things going on with chin as a signal like there's different colors there's different mm-hmm. uv reflection things that we can't really see and so the yeah. temperature might actually play a role in that as well as the the, the way that water might move across it so uh, it remains to be seen it's early days oh that's so cool and when you were doing these experiments were they with wild caught animals or is this captive specimens you have in your lab wild caught animals we do mm-hmm. most research in my lab on wild caught animals because i'm an environmental physiologist so i'm interested in how animals' bodies function in the wild. And so we try to catch animals and collect data right away, um, you know, not reflecting any effects of, of stress or even accl- you know, acclimation to captivity like mm-hmm. many captive animals show. Yeah. Right. So when you were doing these tests, gosh, this is just so interesting. This is not how I was expecting to start this, but I have to, I'm just fascinated. <laughs> when you were doing these tests, um, were you focused on like, you're obviously in California, um, time of year were you able to do it out in the field were you having to bring them back to the lab to do this yeah these are all really great questions so I'll try to make a long story short and then you can ask me any follow-ups make it long Um, I don't care okay okay well I've got like four beers I love okay all right this is great we started it using um Scalopers occidentalis, the western fence lizard, as a model because they're so common for my class in herpetology this spring. We did what's called a course-based undergraduate research experience or a cure where -hmm. the students are able to actually do original research themselves. And then we're all going to publish a paper together with all the students as authors, which I'm really excited about. That's so awesome. I know. It's great. Can I take your class? (laughs) I know, right? It's my first time I've done this and it was really successful. We had uh, 21 students and a few TAs. And we did this study looking at variation across the body and different parts of the body on Scalopris occidentalis. We also looked at change over time related to weather and temperature throughout the day. And I think the overarching thing we're interested in is the drought. The drought is really bad in California this year. And mm-hmm. so that was an easy way to do it with you know, lizards that were just on campus. The students would step outside, catch their animals, come in, take their measurements. Mm-hmm. And then in more of a you know, really hardcore research capacity, we did the same thing with blunt-nosed leopard lizards which Mm -hmm. is part of my graduate student Savannah Weaver's master's thesis research. And this is a federally endangered lizard that only lives in a few isolated pockets of the Central Valley in California, where it used to live before Mm -hmm. oil and agriculture took over. And the long story short about them is that they're highly adapted to the desert, but it's just so incredibly dry now. We wanted to understand how are they balancing water in this really crazy environment and this crazy drought. Um, So in that case, we took the evaporimeter out to the field and we used a large battery to power it Mm -hmm. as opposed to being in the laboratory and then the third one we did was I just got back from a two-week trip to Colorado with a bunch of my colleagues where we used this on prairie rattlesnakes who Mm -hmm. 
are at a coming, they're emerging from hibernation. So we studied this, this den that has like 1500 rattlesnakes in it. Oh, geez. And we were able to, just a I couple. <laughs> I know. And so real different from, you know, the, the rattlesnakes that I study in Southern California, which mm-hmm. are few and far between. It's hard to catch a lot. In this case, in Colorado, in the course of two weeks, we were able to catch over 300 rattlesnakes and collect the full workup of data, everything from wow. evaporative water loss to venom, to coloration, to behavior, to drinking behavior, so many different things that we did with them. So wow. you can get great sample size of animals. Yeah. Yeah. That's definitely more than the rare species of lizard that you're trying to find in just a small pocket of California. <laughs> it's true. And I think that's kind of a theme for me is as a physiologist, I try to study animals that I can get large sample size of. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you can't get good patterns for evaporative water loss on two animals. You have to be able to go out and collect lots of these animals. And mm-hmm. so the scoloporus and the um, prairie rattlesnakes are really common, really easy to work with. And then the blunt-nosed leopard lizards are common in our field site, but of course we have a federal permit to work with them and to catch mm-hmm. them, take our measurements and then immediately let them go. So yeah, yeah they're all great studies all great study systems, all for different reasons. And I'm actually going to be using it on an amphibian for the first time next month. I'm going to Colorado. That'll be really interesting. I know. I'm going to North Carolina to uh, help with a study that's being done by Cindy Cindy Carter. She's a graduate student at University of Georgia. And we're Mm going to compare evaporative water loss of plethodon salamanders across a elevational gradient. Okay. That's fascinating. So when you, obviously there's going to be a significant difference in, in, I don't know how to say it better than the wetness of the animal. <laughs> I mean, yeah, uh, like obviously between an amphibian and a reptile, yes. how are you adjusting your metrics to switch from reptile study research to amphibian research? You know, Dominique, it's crazy. This device is so high tech that it just, you don't have to do anything. It, it just, just knows. Yeah, it just knows. I mean, it's made for humans, which are a hmm. little bit more similar to amphibian skin in terms of their evaporative water loss. Mm-hmm. So it actually does a little bit better with amphibians. I tested it out on a few salamanders here before committing to go there mm-hmm. because the repeatability is extremely high when you have a lot of water, water movement across the skin. With the reptiles, where we're getting down to these little water tanks that are keeping all their water tight under that thick, waxy skin and scales, mm-hmm. then you don't get much water loss and there's a little bit more variability among measurements. So you have to take a few more to be able to yeah. get an accurate measurement, but um, mm-hmm. it works great for either of them. It's awesome. Okay. And then one more question about this, just because I'm fascinated. Did you notice that there was a difference between the water loss between animals that were in shed versus ones that were going into shed versus ones that had just a shed or whatever? I think it's a really good question. And I don't, we don't have that data because the prairie rattlesnakes are the only ones where we would be able to look and see like, are they close to shed? Did they recently mm-hmm. shed? And everything there, because we work at a high altitude den, is all the animals are on the same schedule. So mm-hmm. none of them have shed yet, and then they'll all go through their shed this summer. So if we looked at before and after, then it would be confounded with time of year, so we wouldn't know. So that would be mm-hmm. something that would be really cool to do on captive animals, like what you have. Yeah, That's well, really hey, come great. on by. You know, if you're putting <laughs> yourself in northern Kentucky, <laughs> we got a couple of rat snakes you can look at. <laughs> well, that. Honestly, that is so incredibly fascinating. I love to speak with people who know so much more than me because it's just like, oh, wow, I just get to nod my head and be like, hell yeah. But there's a lot that happened before you got to this point. So Emily, if we can just talk, I'd love to go back and talk about your early life and tell me when was it that you first realized this passion for animals, specifically this passion for reptiles? It was pretty late compared to most herpers, I think. Mm -hmm. So for me, it was uh, right about halfway through college. Okay, I was yeah. an English major. I was actually an English major. I wasn't a bio major at mm-hmm. UC Berkeley. And that said, I was taking you know intro bio, chemistry, math, 
those types of things, because I thought that I wanted to potentially be a physician or a veterinarian. Mm -hmm. And don't ask me why I majored in English. It's English is the <laughs> coolest major at UC Berkeley. I'm, I'm at a polytechnic <laughs> university right now. So my mind is completely flipped on that. But when I was mm -hmm. an undergraduate, you know, UC Berkeley, their English program is incredible. It was really fun for me. And then I could just take the science classes that I needed to take for, mm -hmm. you know, vet school. Anyway, yeah. well, that uh, makes what, sense of the English background, because looking at your website, when you have the intro to the, the female herpetologist study to have that Pelham, it makes a little bit more sense now. <laughs> it's true. It's true. There definitely is some ways in which it has followed me. You know, it certainly has made it easier to, to write, <laughs> to yeah. write scientific articles and so on, but that was never, it wasn't by design. It was just random. I mean, I took a class and it was an intro bio class and I got somehow put in the field section where we were out trapping voles instead of doing canned laboratories in the lab and in, you know, inside. Mm -hmm. And then I thought this was cool. And then someone told me to take a natural history of the vertebrates class. Mm -hmm. And I had space in my schedule. I took it. We got to go out every Saturday all day and either go birding or catching herps or trapping mammals. And I absolutely fell head over heels in love with snakes. I just mm -hmm. didn't know what biologists did, Dominique. I didn't understand that I could do research on these animals, that I could, you know, become a professor. I don't know mm -hmm. if you can hear this, but my dog just came into the recording studio and she's panting really loudly. <laughs> I can't so if anyone it, thinks my that cat. I'm panting, <laughs> if anyone thinks I'm panting, it's just my dog. Oh, that's too funny because my cat <laughs> is just screaming at me. So <laughs> okay, well she just, knows just that as soon as yeah, well, my cat knows as soon as I put the headphones on that I'll just give her treats to shut her up. And so she's like, it's time. God, that's what <laughs> it's like when you train oh, an animal anyway, for the so, wrong behavior. Yeah. <laughs> Interlude. So sorry about that. But uh, so it was that class, really. I took uh, my teacher in that class was Dr. Harry Green, who ended up becoming my undergraduate mentor. And for anyone who mm -hmm. doesn't know who he is, he's really just one of the most renowned rattlesnake biologists. He's now emeritus, now retired from Cornell University, where he went after UC Berkeley. And I got to mm -hmm. take his herpetology class after that, fell further in love. I did undergraduate research with him, went to my first herpetology conference at age 20 and said, these are my people. Where do I sign up? And <laughs> That's so decided, cool. Where was yeah, it? It was in Seattle in 1997. It was okay. a joint meeting of ichthyologists and herpetologists. And mm -hmm. since then, it has. I've been every single time except for twice. And um, hu hugely involved in those societies. I'm the president-elect for the American Society of Ichthyologists and Herpetologists. Really excited. Wow, I did out. not know that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it'll be, it'll be next. I mean, right now I'm president-elect, so I don't have to do much except for watch and think about next year. Mm -hmm. But I'm really looking forward to being able to take on that leadership role for for herpetologists and, and ichthyologists. Yeah, and that was just the beginning. Went on to graduate school and off I went. Oh, that's so fascinating. And I think I just want to like back up a little bit. I think you made such a good point when you said that you had no idea what biologists do, because I don't think I had any idea what biologists did until the beginning of COVID, which is when I got involved with the SciComm community on Twitter, because I was really bored and just started finding all these scientists and seeing all this really cool stuff they're doing. And um, I think the SciComm community specifically shows such a human version of scientists um, and, and what you guys are doing day to day, sharing your research, but also sharing like there's some scientists who are really into art and sharing that and sharing your kids and your families. It's so fascinating. I agree with you. And I think that it's something that they wasn't available when I was a student. So mm -hmm. the professors just seemed like these, I don't know, standing on stage, kind of unattainable people who maybe you couldn't make a connection with. Mm -hmm. And then when you did, like I did with Dr. Harry Green, for example, through field trips and doing research with him, you realize that they are human beings and you realize the kind of things that they get to do for a living and how great it is. 
Um, but now I think that the Cyclom on Twitter, for example, has really demystified that for a lot of younger students. So they can mm -hmm. see these, we're all just normal people who just happen to have incredibly wonderful, fulfilling jobs where I think that Dominique, the big thing is like, when I was an undergraduate student, I looked at my professors and I saw one thing that they did at first, standing in front of a class and teaching. And mm -hmm. that I don't think is, is super appealing to a lot of young students because it mm -hmm. seems like a lot of work. They, it stresses them out, the idea of teaching, which by mm -hmm. the way, teaching is awesome, but it, just, <laughs> it doesn't necessarily, how many undergrads are like, I'm going to be a teacher or especially at, at the college level, relatively few compared to, I'm going to be a doctor, I'm going to be a nurse, I'm going to be a lawyer. Right. Um, and so then what happens is when you actually learn about the rest of the job, you, you realize how can you possibly beat it? I have a job where I get to do research. I get to make up my own research questions, do whatever I want, be out in the field with amphibians and reptiles and young students all the time. You know, I'll, I get older every year and they stay the same age <laughs> come to the lab and they're always really excited and really energetic and, you know, have really cool outlooks on the world. And honestly give me a lot of hope in our future because of their commitment to conservation biology and to improving um, our planet. So it's just incredible. I could take as much time off as I want in the summer or winter or not. I could just do research the whole time. I don't mm -hmm. really have a boss, my department chair, you know, just make sure that I'm where I'm supposed to be when I am. Yeah, you go to class. <laughs> yeah. so it's just a great job. It really is the chance to every day be involved in the process of discovery and to be doing that alongside students and watching it, the effect it has on them and on their careers is, is matchless for me. It's just an incredible um, privilege to be able to have this job. Mm -hmm. And I think you do an, a phenomenal job at it. Obviously, I haven't had you as a professor, but I have seen uh, and heard accolades for you. So it is an honor to be able to be speaking with you because I'm like fangirling a little bit. I was <laughs> telling you. you earlier, but Kiana is going to kill me if I don't bring it up. So for those who aren't aware, um, <laughs> Kiana Fox of the Canadian Herpeticulture podcast and I had a little uh, tiff because Dr. Taylor followed her back on Twitter before me. And I was like, Holy <laughs> shit, I need to get her on my podcast first. And I did. So suck it. All right. <laughs> I love it. It's so funny. Um, I'm sure she'll be reaching out to you soon. <laughs> so back in 1997, studying conservation biology, changing your major, what did that look like compared to nowadays? What did you think was going to be your career path versus where you're sitting now? Oh, that's a really good question. Well, I mean, minor thing, first of all, is I didn't actually change my major. I did graduate with an English degree and I just took the biology classes that I wanted and didn't take oh, them yeah. I didn't want. And that's... then I went in and got my PhD in biology. So it was really the best of both worlds. Yeah. Okay. So how does that work? So I'm actually, that's actually very interesting. Did you just kind of get to skip over the boring ones when you got your PhD or did you have to go back to undergrad classes? Uh, yes. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, I didn't ever take physics, which is kind of crazy. Now mm -hmm. I've never taken physics and I'm a biology professor and overall, while sometimes I, I wish I understood better, some of the processes that are relevant, you know, highly relevant to the animals that I study mm -hmm. overall, I'm like, screw this. I'm so happy to take physics. Um, yeah, I can get that <laughs> with other classes though. Like for example, I never took a dedicated genetics class nowadays. I really wish that I had, mm -hmm. um, of course it's never too late. I sit in on classes at Cal Poly taught by my colleagues all the time so that I can improve my um, educational understanding and experience. But that said, when I, when I did apply to graduate school for, you know, I didn't do a master's, I went straight to my PhD with a degree in English. The graduate coordinator was noticeably like, hmm, 
okay are you sure? I'm not so sure so they, mm-hmm. they did have me take some extra classes like biochemistry and animal behavior and I was mm-hmm. thrilled to take all of those because those are related to what I was doing which was environmental physiology you need to know biochemistry you need to understand how animals mm-hmm. behave in the wild so mm-hmm. and so then- can we pause for really fast mm-hmm. and pause really quick just because um I like to call like occasionally say that my podcast is for kind of people who are like a little bit dumb when it comes to these kinds of things but really wants to learn what does it mean when you say you're a physiologist you know, well, first of all, it's not about being dumb. It's just about, you know, knowing different things. That's what I like. Yeah. (laughs) I know a lot of things, just not everything. (laughs) Yeah. Everyone has their, I mean, and I'm a perfect example of this, Dominique. Like I know all there is to know about environmental physiology, but oh my gosh, ask me normal life things, street smarts things. And you'll just just stare (laughs) at you blankly. Like (laughs) I'm a specialist. I don't know how to function otherwise. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But anyway, uh, yeah. Physiology is the, the biology of how organisms bodies work. So I study, the an environmental physiologist I study the interface between the environment and the animal so mm-hmm. I study things like thermoregulation and osmoregulation or which is also going to be things like water balance regulation in wild reptiles um, hormones and behavior reproductive biology stress physiology mm-hmm. how they respond to stressors and maintain homeostasis that's kind of the, the some of the general physiological themes that I study and I do it exclusively with lizards and snakes although mm-hmm. I do occasionally collaborate like I will be with the salamanders with other people who study other groups mm-hmm. okay awesome all right well I appreciated that that quick uh pause I just think it's important to I need to know and I want our listeners to be able to know a little well, bit better I know. I'm you glad did. that you mentioned that and I think I'm gonna well, I'm gonna just you know butt in here as well and say why it's important right so mm-hmm. I get a lot of students coming to me saying Dr. Taylor I want to study animal behavior I want to study ecology those are really great fields but physiology is one of the field that really joins everything together so Mm -hmm. if you're under if you're curious about where animals occur and why they occur there which is ecology physiology is one of the tools that will help you understand that better Um, Mm -hmm. if you're curious about why animals are behaving the way they do physiology can help you with that even things like genomics nowadays physiology is this kind of branch between the genes of the organism and then their actual functional performance in nature so that's Mm -hmm. why i love physiology Mm -hmm. i think that's i think that's awesome and i think I think it's an interesting um, cross-section because you can't really have one thing like how the animal works without uh, looking at the environment that it's in, especially nowadays with the environment changing as quickly as it is. I feel like your research from one year to the next can be just vastly different. It's, you're true. It's, it's, you're absolutely right. You know, there's there's something it's more like classical physiology where people bring animals into the laboratory or study laboratory models, which can be valuable for different reasons. But yes, yeah, so if you're talking about something like a reptile, we're most interested in how they're functioning in their environment. So let's do those projects in the field or in short-term captivity projects mm-hmm. so that we can um, get things that are actually ecologically relevant. That's a big theme in my research is ecological relevance, trying to mm-hmm. look at how animals are adapted to and functioning within their environments. And you're right now, this changing environment. So we are studying climate change and not just increasing temperatures, but drought and how those impact animals. Drought has mm-hmm. been largely ignored. And it, <laughs> this year you can't ignore it anymore. So we're on top of it. No. Yeah. And, and I was curious, because especially with you being in California, um, are you in the path of any of the uh, wildfires that are expected this year and that, that happened last year? everywhere in California is now in the path of potential major wildfires. Yeah. So mm-hmm. there's no more fire season because they could happen all year round, although we're coming up to the peak season right now right. and they could pop up anywhere, including the national forest around us, which is dry as a bone. So yes, mm-hmm. we are, we are, our field sites are all in areas that could get burned. It's terrifying and worrisome and you feel a little powerless with it. You, mm-hmm. you 
so you, you just got to keep hoping that we do okay where we are and mm -hmm. hoping for policy changes for everything from water management to forest management to so many different things that may ultimately impact climate change because climate change is really the culprit in all of this. Right. And that was actually something I wanted to ask you about. Climate change is something that's obviously very difficult, especially as a biologist for you to think about and stuff. How do you maintain your passion? And then you're like, hope for encouraging these students to study these things that can be kind of devastating to think about sometimes? That's such a good question, Dominique. And everyone's really different with this. I've learned a lot from pe watching people on Twitter about it because mm -hmm. I've learned that my point of view is not necessarily really common. Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of people find my point of view depressing, but for some reason I don't. So I've always been a little bit of um, a pessimist about all of it, but mm -hmm. I mean, but don't worry, there's going to be an asterisk at the end of all this. Oh no, you're good. I mean, this is, this yeah. is your opinions and beliefs. So I want, I want to know what you think. Right. So really, I think that when I was in college, people obviously knew that climate change was going to be occurring, but it wasn't this united unifying theme that it is now among my mm -hmm. biology students. Mm -hmm. I remember sitting in a college class. It was actually like a Russian literature class and the <laughs> teacher, the teacher asking, what's the, what is the theme of your generation? And we all had to talk about it. And people were coming up with all these different ideas. There wasn't any unifying theme. I think what I came up with was HIV and HIV awareness because it was such a huge threat to all of us yeah. back then because we didn't mm -hmm. know that anyone who was positive would be able to live a long and healthy life back then. It was really considered to be a death sentence. So mm -hmm. that was what I chose. But the point was there wasn't any unified theme. And I think that I was, you know, very, very much a fatalist. And I still am a little bit to an extent with thinking that the people who have money and greed are going to be more powerful because those are what speak than those of us who would wish to be able to preserve the earth. And so I really took on, took a tack of being, well, of saying, well, I'm going to be the one cataloging this. I'm going to want to study this. I'm going to watch how this all occurs. And I'm a scientist, so I'm not going to let my emotions get in the way, no matter how depressing it is. And I'm mm -hmm. going to take advantage of the fact that I know this natural experiment is going to be happening and I'm going to watch it as it goes. Okay. So that was, that's always been kind of my attitude. That mm -hmm. said, I have been changing that attitude in recent years and it's been because of my students. Mm -hmm. So their outlook is completely different than mine was when I was their age. They don't have that fatalism that I do. They are fired up to get out <laughs> there and to make changes that they truly believe can happen. And they're starting to make me think that it could happen as well. How I mean, I'm learning from them just as much as they're learning from me. A lot of it mm -hmm. is about attitude. And so I get really emotional when I think about these students who all I'm doing is giving them some of the critical thinking skills and some of the facts that are necessary for them to go out and change the world and to make things actually happen. So that's where I get my hope in this whole thing is that, yeah, I'm this, I'm this like, you know, middle-aged scientist who's cataloging the effects of drought on these animals. And then someone behind me who I have a small role in training is going to be the one who's the mover and shaker, who's going to come up with the technology, who's going to come up with the um, other sorts of tools that are actually going to change things and reverse things. Mm -hmm. I think that's awesome. I, hope, I, hope. I love that. And I think, I think a healthy dose of pessimism is important. You know, I always say I'm a realist. It depends on the data that I feel like calling myself a realist is kind of a cop out. Um, cause I don't want to sway either way, but that's also just the Libra in me. So, um, <laughs> I'm Libra too. oh my gosh, no wonder we're friends. Um, <laughs> but one thing I wanted to ask, which is not related to reptiles at all. Have you noticed that this shift you said in the last few years, um, your students have really started to inspire you more for more hope. 
have you noticed a shift at all when you're getting from the millennials to the Gen Z, like you're at that cusp right now with your students age-wise? Have you seen any of that generational shift? I have, and I don't know what it is. It may have something mm-hmm. to do with recent political events, the galvanizing students, you know, mm-hmm. um, our former president, I think, galvanized a lot of students to fight more and make change for things that they believed in with respect to the environment. Mm-hmm. So that's what that's what my best guess is, is that the, definitely the past five years or so, the students have been way more vocal and galvanized and hopeful than mm-hmm. they seemed to be before then. I think that, like, this is just a hypothesis, but it seems like maybe they were a little more complacent beforehand. And then the types of reversals on environmental policies that occurred in the Trump administration maybe not, you know, broke people out of the reverie and said, oh my gosh, we have to do something about this. And Mm -hmm. maybe people care more. That's just a guess based on- It'd be interesting. Yeah, it'd be interesting to to ask that same question to, you know, not to make a generalization, but you are a professor from California asking that versus a professor in Mississippi. That would be just an interesting conversation to have. You You couldn't be more right. You couldn't be more right. Although- I will point out, though, that even though I am in a bubble out here, I definitely mm-hmm. try to, to, to get out of that bubble as, as often as possible. I did my first sabbatical in the south side of Chicago. I try mm-hmm. to go to different places. So I travel a lot internationally because being in a bubble is not a good place for a professor to remain. Mm-hmm. Um, that said, you're totally right. My students do come from a pretty diverse cross-section of California. A lot of them come from conservative families. A lot of them come from liberal families, mm-hmm. um, people all different, you know, races, uh, gender identities and so on so um but you're right it is not necessarily indicative of what we see in the broader sense mm-hmm. across the country which is why you never just take one sample size you have to do a bunch of them right exactly. like i mean basically a scientist oh my god <laughs> so <get> published <laughs> yeah great the, my notes from this will be published can't wait i'll put it on my blog or something <laughs> so you uh, man we got off track a little bit but that's okay so now you are a Oh my gosh. Say it again. Your official title as a scientist. I'm a professor of biology at Cal Poly. Professor of biology at Cal Poly, but you are a physiologist. Oh Oh my gosh. Okay. So you're environmental physiologist. Environmental. I was like, it's not ecological. Environmental physiologist. Well, ecological physiologist is another way to say the same thing. Okay, great. Well, that makes sense. Cause in my head, they were the same word. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So what has gone on in your life between the, 19, the late 1990s when you graduated and you were like, I'm going to be a scientist now. Um, I'd love to talk about what you focused your thesis on in your PhD and then how the hell you got where you are now. So let's talk about your PhD and your thesis first. You bet. My PhD was, those are the best years of my life. It was so much fun. I think it's really important to say that outright because there's a lot of stuff going around Twitter about how graduate school is so hard. It's so, yeah, it has been, it is hard, but it's great. No, it's so, it was through a combination of, of luck in terms of being in the right place and getting a great advisor. And then Mm -hmm. the hard work that it comes naturally when you're happy with what Mm -hmm. you're doing. Mm -hmm. I feel like I was just truly privileged to be, to be where I was when I was, it was great. Dominique, Mm -hmm. I was, um, I was my graduate advisor's first graduate student at Arizona State University. So he was a young professor. He had just gotten the job. His name is Dr. Dale DiNardo. He's a, mm-hmm. also an environmental physiologist of reptiles and he's a veterinarian too. So I got a oh, lot Oh, wow. Of, he covered the board. He really, <laughs> oh my God, this guy's amazing. He got his veterinary degree first and then went, by, oh, from Davis and then went back and got his PhD from UC Berkeley. And now he's a full professor at Arizona State. So he's 
truly impressive. And he's just a really nice guy. And for the first two years, it was just me and him. So I helped set up the lab. Mm-hmm. I got to start the first field work, which was on Western Diamondback rattlesnakes and Gila monsters. I got to radio track those oh animals for two years <laughs> in this beautiful area in the Sonoran Desert. It was upland Sonoran Desert outside of Tucson. So picture mm-hmm. giant saguaro cactus, mesquite, ironwood, ocotillo, just lush Sonoran Desert. Mm-hmm. Incredible. I absolutely were exactly where I wanted to be. And one of the many reasons in which I was so lucky was that he sat me one day. Well, he let me do one year of field work, just tracking rattlesnakes and healing monsters. Then he sat me down. And he said, what do you want to study? He didn't tell me what I had to study. And I said, well, I want to study why the male rattlesnakes are bigger than the females. And he said, well, you know, everyone says evolutionarily it's because the males fight for females and the bigger ones mm-hmm. win. So that selects for, and I said, well, okay, let me, backtrack i want to know how they become bigger i wanted to know the physiology of sexual size dimorphism in rattlesnakes mm-hmm. so that's what i did i did all these really cool field experiments and lab experiments on western diamondback rattlesnakes mm-hmm. and the long story short of it is that there's not this fixed genetic difference like we see in some species mm-hmm. instead they would they, they're born the same size they grow at the same rate but then what happens is at reproductive maturity the females stop growing because they put or slow down their growing dramatically because they start putting all that energy into making all those babies. Right. And so it's really just a, you know, what we call phenotypic plasticity, the idea that their phenotype, their appearance, how big they are in this case, mm-hmm. just depends on the environment, depends on how much food they get and how much, how many pups they have, how many baby rattlesnakes they have. Mm-hmm. Um, Is that what baby rattlesnakes are called? Baby rattlesnakes are officially called pups. Yes. That's very cute for a scary I animal. I so too. <laughs> Maybe, you know what I mean? They'll think about baby rattlesnakes with their giant eyes and they They're like so, curl they up like these really little cute. nuggets. They're so yeah. cute. So. Yeah. Very boopable. <laughs> right. I think. Yeah. Or boopable from like 10 feet away, I guess. Yeah. Right with like a little, <laughs> with a long stick. <laughs> I know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Stick. Well, that makes, that uh, brings up a point I wanted to ask you about. So um, two questions on this. First off, were you always drawn to desert species or was it a product of the environment you were in? And then second off, how do you, as a student, learn to study a venomous species or learn to handle a venomous species that like is dangerous, you know, and, and what are the, what are the requirements from your university to allow that kind of study? Yeah, these are great questions. Um, the first one is that, when I was a student at UC Berkeley and did my undergraduate research project on rattlesnakes, I was studying museum specimens. They were dead specimens. Um, mm-hmm. I studied the Baja California rattlesnake, which occurs pretty much exclusively in the desert. And mm-hmm. I got to go on a, on a one trip. I basically got to go down there and see them in the wild since I was studying only pickled ones in jars. <laughs> and when I was down there, I thought, oh my God, the desert is so great. I love it. Mm-hmm. I had played soccer at UC Berkeley. So I had gotten to go back and forth to Arizona and New Mexico a few times and seen the desert. I had never lived in the desert though, because my dad was in the Navy and we only lived along the coast. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> anyway, so I knew that going to a place like Arizona was going to be really great for studying rattlesnakes in the desert. And that was probably the, one of the main reasons I ended up choosing that program was to get to study rattlesnake physiology in the desert. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was, that was the reason for that. And then the process of studying um, venomous animals is so variable, Dominique, the, the certifications and the trainings. And uh, back then my advisor trained me Mm-hmm. Um, we're fairly relaxed with it. And nowadays when I train my students, I'm like completely insane with safety. Yeah. I, go, I can imagine. Really, yeah. And part of the reason is that I was actually bitten my first year of graduate school. 
and invented oh, a way to wow. buy a Western tie back. And it wasn't my, I just realized it made it sound like it was my advisor's fault because he was, no, that's not the case at all. It was, mm -hmm. I mean, he definitely taught me to do it safely. The problem was that I was, I, I had, let's see how to explain this. The type of research I did involved catching and handling lots of rattlesnakes all the time. So mm -hmm. hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of rattlesnakes all the time, constantly. And I think that the combination of just getting really used to it and then having a little bit of a young ego thinking mm -hmm. that I was kind of knew what I was doing and mm -hmm. was untouchable. All those things ended up with me in a split second getting envenomated by a snake that acted a little different than the rest of them. And I should have been ready for, it's always my fault. It's never the snake's fault. Right. And even though the bite didn't, as far as rattlesnake bites go, didn't end up being a super severe bite. It was enough to really knock some serious sense into me. And ever since then, I've been over the top careful. Yeah. And so, so yeah. So yeah. when that happened, I assume, did you have to seek out like hospital care what was the aftercare like for this oh, bite yeah uh well first of all i had to, uh, it happened in the lab in the laboratory so okay well that's good him. yeah luckily yeah. it was in the lab yeah it's <laughs> <laughs> right, better medically. than like <laughs> medically yeah but a little bit more embarrassing i can imagine it was so awful because they <laughs> must have been a must have been a really you know dull day at the hospital in phoenix that day because they sent like eight emts it's like oh student got bit on the arizona campus <laughs> So they all roll in, even though at that point, my hand was barely swollen by the time they got there, they made me like, they forced me to get wheeled out on a gurney. And I was just <laughs> mortified because my ego, you know, I was, well, I was really worried about what was going to happen to my advisor in our lab. Were we going to get shut mm -hmm. down? Um, I was worried about my ego because I, I wasn't worried about my ego. I was worried about my reputation because I was one of mm -hmm. the first female graduate students studying rattlesnakes which is really uncommon back then and then oh there she goes and gets bitten in her first year I was worried yeah. about all these things that are silly and I should have been worrying about my hand mm -hmm. um but as it turned out it was it was you know I spent one night in the ICU I got 10 vials of anti-venom and uh back then bites were much less expensive than they are now so my bite was mm -hmm. $15,000 and my insurance paid for all of it Oh, nowadays, you're so lucky. Bites, I know. Nowadays, as you know, bites can routinely go up to $300,000 or even I heard of one recently that was $800,000. So they can mm. be devastating for people who are uninsured or underinsured even. Mm -hmm. Anyway, it, it really knocks sense into me. And now we are crazy when it comes to how we handle rattlesnakes. We're yeah. mostly hands off, to be honest. Like most of the work I do now is watching them from afar. There's a lot we can do with that. Mm -hmm. But when we do have to catch them, um, and I also teach snake safety training classes. So I've just come a long way in terms of being like, mm -hmm. here is what we do to make it safe. And then we go this and this and this to make it crazy safe. Right. And I, I noticed that one of the things you had posted about on your, um, on your Twitter was, it was just a, a random photo of a tubed rattlesnake. And I believe one of your students, um, and it mentioned that your, this rattlesnake in particular was sedated. Is that something you commonly do for training for students or is that a typical practice when you're actually doing research? Great question. No, we don't sedate the rattlesnakes for training. Um, mm -hmm. Basically a student who's gonna be trained to handle rattlesnakes is gonna to need to be ready for right. those <laughs> things that I wasn't really ready for, like the snake that behaves you know, unpredictably and so on. Mm -hmm. So we definitely train the snakes using live rattlesnakes. In fact, I have two outreach and training rattlesnakes that I house at my, at my home here in California. Mm -hmm. And then we, you know, try it out together on wild snakes and so on. Um, the sedation is coming pretty much exclusively when the animal has to be anesthetized for radio transmitter implantation. Okay. So the picture that you may have seen recently was a former graduate student of mine, Haley Crowell, mm -hmm. posing next to a very large rattlesnake. And the reason yes. that I said 
this rattlesnake is sedated is because without that context on social media, people would think that she was just leaning down next to this enormous yes. rattlesnake, <laughs> which would be totally irresponsible. But yeah, because absolutely. the snake was sedated, it was okay. So that snake mm -hmm. was recovering from a um, putting a radio transmitter inside her. Okay. So when you do radio transmitters in snakes, um, this is just my pure curiosity. How do you do it so that they don't mess it up with like shedding or anything? Yeah, because I know um, I know on most species it's it's like subdermal, obviously, but there is part that sticks out generally. Yeah, you know, actually, so it depends. There's a number of different ways to do it, but when it comes to big snakes like rattlesnakes, the entire process is what we call intracelemic, meaning it's not even subdermal, not just under the skin. It's actually under the muscle, alongside the mm. organs. Okay. So you take a sterile radio transmitter, you make a small incision. Notably, I was trained by my advisor who's a veterinarian, so I'm a good surgeon when it comes to this. I can do one mm -hmm. thing, I can do one kind of stitch, and that's mm -hmm. it, and I know how to do it really well. <laughs> um, you put it in there, and then you're probably thinking of the antenna, which in the case of the rattlesnake, yes. it doesn't stick it doesn't stick out but what you have to do is you have to run it under the skin so okay. you use a, a, a catheter it's called tomcat catheter which is what they put up tomcat penises in the veterinary mm. office to get to get your lucky out. for them yes you run that <laughs> under the skin just as a guide for the radio transmitter antenna but then you remove it afterwards so that basically the entire thing is inside the animal you suture the animal up and rattlesnakes recover so amazingly you mm -hmm. give them a little bit of um of antibiotic for any mm -hmm. you know anything that possibly got in there in the air. And mm -hmm. then you put them outside, put them right back in the wild because if they can thermoregulate and not be stressed in captivity, they're going to heal even faster. And right. Dominique, we've seen, we've seen rattlesnakes hunting the very next day. We've seen wow. males courting females. They are perfectly fine and they heal up really well. Sometimes when they shed, you'll get a, um, a little tiny piece of, of dead skin will remain on the, on the suture scar, but for the mm -hmm. most part, they're able to shed without a problem. That's good. So that's, very interesting. So I, um, I don't believe I discussed this with you, but my background before I got into private keeping, it has been in rescue. I work with a um, 501c3 nonprofit uh, reptile rescue. And just last week, no, excuse me, like three weeks ago at this point, I was driving home from work and there was a gray rat snake in the middle of the road that had been hit by a car. So we do uh, reptile rehab for native species. And I pulled it to the side of the road and its heart was visibly beating outside of its body. And so I called our rehabber and I was like, Hey, I'm going to bring them in because at this point I was kind of assuming, um, that humane euthanasia was going to be the best option rather than letting it die on the side of the road. So I luckily, like any good snake lady, I had a pillowcase in the back of my car. Of course you did. <laughs> of course you did. Of, co of course I did. Right. And so I checked it in the pillowcase gently. By the time we got to the rescue, only 10 minutes away, the heart had popped back in the muscle wall. All that's left is like half a dime size, like a degloving area. And it's fine. It is, it, I was shocked. We're still, we still have it in the rescue. We'll probably keep it for a couple more weeks just to make sure that everything heals up correctly. But I, man, I treat my captive animals like they're going to die any second. I really got to give more credit. They are so resilient. It's shocking. I always tell my students in herpetology who they're surprised when they see a scar on an animal. I said, that's like nothing to mm -hmm. them. And I tell them how, mm -hmm. how puny us humans are with our immune system and how in biology, we're always taught to compare everything to humans as though we're some sort of pinnacle. Yeah. Of, no. Oh my God. <laughs> Look no. at the last so, year. We're not a pinnacle. Oh, at all. Oh, <laughs> But when it comes to immune function is a perfect example. Reptiles are have some of the most incredible immune systems that are known among any of the vertebrates. And we're learning a lot from them in terms of things that might potentially help humans too. Everything mm -hmm. 
from learning how they, you know, can, can things like crocodiles and alligators can live in these really dirty swamps and they can have these horrible gashes and completely recover. Their blood mm-hmm. seems to be able to kill any pathogen that we can possibly mm-hmm. throw at them. They're totally amazing, but you're right about the snakes. I have a similar story really quick. Yeah. Tell it me happened to me on a field trip. We the same thing. It was a desert king snake in the road in my herpetology class in Arizona in the summer. And it had the, the heart sticking out, pumping away. And it's called a it cardio the, seal. There's a name cardio for it. Seal. It was the weirdest thing I've ever seen in my entire life. Of course, I got a video of it because I was like, okay, we yeah. have to document this. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Well, we're going to share notes later because I have a video, too. Maybe you can put them in your show notes of mine. Yes, and of course. Dominique, I was ready to humanely euthanize the snake. And my students begged me. They said, no, no, please, please. And I said, okay, if it's still alive in the morning, then we'll sew it up. We'll see. So in the mm-hmm. morning, it was still alive. We gave it water. It was still alive. So I poked the heart back in, sewed it up. And that snake, the students named him Ecto because his heart was outside his body. Yeah. <laughs> we um, got permission from Arizona Fish and Game to take it home so it could recover. One of the students kept it. And it lived for like three more years. And it grew oh huge. And it ended up when it, the student, um, when the snake eventually passed away, they took it to get a necropsy at a veterinarian. And they found out that it had died eventually of pericardial stenosis, which is the hardening of the pericardial sac. So mm-hmm. it did die of the injury, but many years later after after living a really good life. So that's just so incredible. Imagine that yeah. happening to us with our heart beating outside of our body and then just sticking it back in and going about your ba- day. Yeah, I can't. <laughs> I, I like stub my toe and I'm down for the count. Uh, I know. <laughs> I know. So this is unrelated, but this is just a question I have that I could definitely Google, but you're like cool and, and know things. So this is your specialty stuff. Thinking about the like how great the immune system is of snakes specifically, what is the benefit of having a smaller lung versus having just one really large, well-working lung for snakes? Well, you know what? You're probably going to have to Google it to get the full answer to that. That's not my specialty. I don't know for sure. Um, Mm -hmm. What My understanding is that it has to do with the elongated shape of the snake. So the idea is that when you're... So the last thing I heard is that you had, it had to do with the shape of the snake. Yeah. So my understanding, which, you know, again, is limited. This is not the area that I study is that it has to do with this elongate morphology because it happens in other elongate animals too. You get this reduction of one lung. So Hmm. the idea may be that when the snake is so long and skinny that having a single lung that can inflate quite a bit is easier to fit into that body than having two smaller lungs that only a little bit. There's probably other hypotheses for that as well, but yeah, I don't know. I just think it's so interesting because I have a question. I had a, a snake pass away a few months ago now, and I, I sent it out for necropsy just because, you know, with with my collection, it being small enough that I want to make sure <laughs> everything is in line. Yes. Um, and I had never really seen snake lungs before, and it was very fascinating to me. <laughs> so just curious. They really are cool looking, yeah. So when you go out in the field and you're doing this research, and obviously you're looking for specific things and you're doing a specific study, what do you do, if anything, to just look at general um, health and welfare of the animals that you're working with? Like, are you looking for any specific diseases that are common in the area, any injuries or things like that? Or do you just focus on what you're researching? Yeah, I think that with most of my work, we we take notes on anything that's obvious, uh, mm-hmm. which I'll list off in just a moment, but it's really as a sideline to what we're doing. Um, mm-hmm. I think that scars are really common on things like rattlesnakes and they're interesting Mm -hmm. to note but you don't know what the history of that was in terms of data body condition is is one of the major ones so body condition is basically how fat is that snake how heavy is it for its given size Mm -hmm. and so animals that are really really thin are potentially problematic to study because there's clearly something was wrong they've either Mm -hmm. had bad luck or 
some sort of infection or something has rendered them really, really skinny. Unless they're a uh, postpartum female, then we know exactly what that mm-hmm. <laughs> luck was. And how do, you, how do you notice if it's a postpartum female? Are there signs that you're looking for? It's super obvious. So um, with rattlesnakes, which is the, you know, the, what you the study group that I'm the expert on yeah mm-hmm. I, that's the, the one one group that I really know everything there is to know as of now there's always more <laughs> to find out but I know the stuff um you can tell a female rattlesnake I can I can look at her and tell if she's gonna have a baby that year based on her it's all about body weight mm-hmm. um and so when she does give birth she usually loses like 40 to 50 percent of her body weight and mm-hmm. so she immediately is gonna have these skin folds that go along her side and you can see so like when we were in Colorado and we were catching hundreds of snakes, I, each one I said, she's either gravid this year. So she's going to mm-hmm. be having babies this year or last year she had babies. I can always tell by the skin folds or they're in an in-between year because sometimes they don't give birth every other year. Sometimes it takes three years and I can tell if there's a nice female, she's got pretty good body condition, mm-hmm. but she's not quite fat enough to have babies. I'll, I'll say she'll probably go next year. So you really can tell just based on their body weight when they're going to have babies and when they did have babies. Yeah. And so how do you, in general, do um, rattlesnakes specifically like take years off from breeding? Most species of rattlesnakes do. The females mm-hmm. will give birth either every other year is probably the most common, I would say, when you look across rattlesnake species. Some mm-hmm. species of rattlesnakes might give birth every three years or even less often if conditions are really poor or if the animal, ha- like some of the species like timber rattlesnakes and um, some Eastern diamondback populations, they just have a little bit of a slower life history where it just takes them a little longer. Um, that said, some species like sidewinders or Western diamondback rattlesnakes, or even some of the Western rattlesnakes like Southern Pacifics, if they get enough food, then they may have babies every year. Mm-hmm. So it's not common, but they can have babies every year if mm-hmm. they get, you know, a big mouse while they're pregnant or after, right after they have babies. So what species are you working with most specifically now? Uh, right now I'm working with two species of rattlesnakes, Southern Pacific rattlesnakes are the ones locally here in central California on the coast mm-hmm. that I work with. And then prairie rattlesnakes are what we study in Colorado. And do you have a preference for your favorite rattlesnake to study? Oh, well, my favorite one to study. Oh God, that's hard. Um, th- the prairie rattlesnakes in Colorado are incredible because we have this den where we can go out and collect, you know, dozens of any life stage uh, we can get as many pregnant females as we want and so on so they're really easy to collect mm-hmm. um, but the local rattlesnake I really love them just because I've had so much experience with them at different field sites there's something about the challenge as well of finding them it makes it you know it's like Christmas morning when you're out looking around and you flip mm-hmm. a log and you find one it's, it's exciting yeah. so as mm-hmm. a scientist it's way easier to work at the den but just <laughs> as a herper I do like the southern pacific rattlesnakes and, I, and I'm inherently Dominique I'm in love with oak woodland I absolutely love it and so the fact that I can hike around Oak Woodland and find these beautiful rattlesnakes, they're probably, they have to be my favorite, I would think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's awesome. So getting off of your research a little bit, you mentioned that you do snake safety training. Is this part of your, um, was it uh, Central Coast Snake Services? That's right. Yeah. I started a small business in 2019 because I was already doing some snake safety trainings for biologists, military Mm -hmm. personnel, you know, people who have to move rattlesnakes from here, you know, now or then, uh, that, who have to move rattlesnakes every once in a while mm-hmm. yeah, and need, need to do it safely. So I, I started a business to incorporate that. And then COVID hit and I, I was found myself, I was on sabbatical. I was supposed to be in Guam and the Bahamas and doing all kinds of crazy stuff. Oh, I found man. myself grounded at home mm-hmm. in COVID when people were spending a bunch of time in their yards. And when we had this incredibly wet spring where there was tons of rattlesnake activity. And so I started doing things like relocations of rattlesnakes from people's yards, mm-hmm. consulting on 
you know, what to do with your dog living in your yard with rattlesnakes, installing mm-hmm. rattlesnake proof fencing and all that. And so it's been um, about a year and a half now we've had that business. So our last guest, Chelsea Richardson, um, like I mentioned to you, she does a snake aversion training for rattlesnakes. Are you doing similar for, uh, for dogs in your region? So we do not do the rattlesnake aversion training ourselves. However, we mm-hmm. bring in trainers from Southern California. So we work with canine rattlesnake solutions, which okay. is a great California company. And they come in, they were just at my house. Actually, we trained 43 dogs two weeks ago on the central coast. Oh my coast. gosh. Wow. Yeah, that's... Including my dog. My dog Pax is finally rattlesnake aversion trained and oh, I'm a good. huge believer, huge believer in the method. I think it's really great that people are doing mm-hmm. this. I'm not a dog trainer though. I, I'm a rattlesnake person. Mm-hmm. I'm not the dog trainer. And so people like Chelsea or people like the Aaron and Eric from rattlesnakes, uh, excuse me, from canine, um, the natural solutions, they are both mm-hmm. dog trainers and they know the snakes. So yeah. that's really the kind of sweet spot to have is you want to have, if you're going to hire someone, you want someone who's got both those tools. Yeah. <laughs> Cause one or the other is going to help one, but not the other. <laughs> I mean, just one look at my dog, like one, you hang up my dog for five minutes and you'll realize I'm not a dog trainer. <laughs> you don't want me training your dog. <laughs> yeah. We were having a conversation. Um, I don't think my boss listens to this podcast. I mean, if you do, Hey Paul, but, uh, my boss today was telling us like that he, he has two dogs and they're rather large and they bit another dog. And all of us were like, well, duh, we see how they act around the office. <laughs> like they're in charge of you, Paul. <laughs> like, it's like, yeah, we like, could have guessed yeah. that. Yeah. And so now he, it was so funny. I had to go in and, and, you know, people at work know me as the crazy animal lady, of course. Like I'm, I'm the one that like, I keep bringing cicadas out of the office outside because oh, I just God. don't have the heart to kill them. You know, there's no really need. Yeah. Um, but Paul was showing me his like workbook of all these things he needs to do to train his dogs. And I'm like, yeah, Paul, I could have told you that. <laughs> You're like, when um, are you going to start this? When are you going to start? <laughs> he had his first class today. And I was like, thank God. Oh, Cause his, nice. his dogs are so funny, but I sit at the desk and one of the dogs will sit with both of its hands, like right on my chest. And you know, dogs are so good at just getting you right in the nipple. Like they just get oh that dew claw. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, so you're just trying to have a meeting and you just get bullseyed. And I was like, oh my God, okay. (laughs) Add to list, teach dog to avoid nipple. Yeah, I'm going to get like some iron, I work in construction, so I have iron toed boots. I'll have to get some steel toed, you know, cups or something, but. uh, (laughs) Steel nipple bras, oh my God. (laughs) Uh, So you do your your snake safety training with the dogs, but then tell me about um, rattlesnake relocation. Are you, do you have specific license because of your work as a professor? And then what are your requirements for when you relocate an animal? So in Ohio and Kentucky, we have to release within like a mile, but sometimes, and it's obviously I'm not working with rattlesnakes. It's usually rat snakes and stuff, but I can imagine, especially in areas densely populated as California, it can be difficult to find a safe place to release the rattlesnakes. All really great questions. So yeah, first of all, I do have a a scientific collecting permit, which I have for my research that I do that I also have the business and the relocations of rattlesnakes Mm -hmm. um, allowed on that. There are other possibilities for people who are not researchers instead of a scientific collecting permit. There are different licenses people can have, but yes, you do need to have a license from California Department of Fish and Wildlife to be able to relocate rattlesnakes. Now, Mm -hmm. 
it's ironic because rattlesnakes are like the only herb in California that you don't need to have a fishing license to collect or to eat or to do whatever you want to. Yet you hmm. do have to have a license to move them. Okay. Um, and okay. then down in Southern California, the red diamond rattlesnake, which is a species of special concern, you have to have special permission yet to deal with them. Mm-hmm. So where I am, it's just Southern Pacific rattlesnakes. I have permission to move them. And yeah, I follow. Um, and that's what I think it's really important that people understand that you're not just moving them willy nilly because people do crazy things. People have a spot that they move all their snakes to. That's like 30 miles away. No, 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 no. That's terrible. So I follow the, the current translocation research, uh, mm-hmm. translocation or relocation, same thing being the movement of rattlesnakes from one spot to the next. Mm-hmm. In fact, my lab has done a lot of this research. So I'm really familiar with what works in rattlesnakes and what doesn't. And we definitely move them as close as possible. A quarter mile is probably our, on average, what we try to do. And then a half mile would be the farthest we would do. Um, actually mm-hmm. in California where I live is a pretty rural area. So I never have problems finding places. Where That's nice. Yeah, I think it's a bigger problem in certain other places. A friend of mine up in Sacramento says it's really hard because there's a lot of private land. Where mm-hmm. I am, I've never had a difficulty being able to find it, a really nice wooded area, quarter mile or a half mile away from that person's yard. So you mentioned with the prairie rattlesnakes that they have a den. So it seems like they have some sort of like homing system yes. in them. Yes. Is the same happening with the Southern Pacific? Are rattlesnakes often appearing back on the same property? So they don't appear to be. And that the that's tricky to answer why that is because I'm a scientist. And so I have some speculation about it, but I don't have any data. So that's a really mm-hmm. important distinction. The first thing is that when people have rattlesnakes in their yard, it's really important to understand that they saw that one rattlesnake, but there are other rattlesnakes around. They almost never see them because, you know, rattlesnakes don't want to make themselves be seen. Mm -hmm. Um, And so a snake, a snake might move back to that house, but I would never know it. In other words, I never get calls from people saying the same snake has come back. Or I've never, if I do get calls from a house from multiple snakes, one after the other, it's never the same snake. I can tell by Mm -hmm. looking at them, Mm -hmm. but that doesn't mean that they don't go back for sure. However, what I can tell you from, we've done both short distance translocation and long distance translocation research in my lab to look at the propensity of actual local snakes to move back. So what I do is evidence-based. And what I can tell you is that with long distance translocation, which we don't recommend ever doing, Mm -hmm. um, the snakes wander around a little bit, but they don't try to make it back. I don't think they could if they wanted to. The short distance translocation, I thought they were going to all move back. Nope. They just hang out. They just stay where they are for the most part. And in fact, the only times when we had snakes move right back was when we took a male away from a female during mating season. Hmm. <laughs> and he was just like beeline right back. He's like, oh, I'm going back to my girl. That's funny. Um, and of course, if, you know, if that was to happen here locally, I, I would be releasing both. I would be collecting both the male and female right. and releasing them together. So that wouldn't be an issue. Mm-hmm. So no, it doesn't seem to be a problem. I will say that it, it definitely is in some other scenarios. The Arizona Sonora, Sonoran Desert Museum has done research on you know snakes that have come onto their property because they it's it's in the middle of the desert Mm -hmm. and they've relocated snakes and sometimes they come right back because they actually pit tag the snakes so they can see for Mm -hmm. sure which ones they are uh brian hughes of rattlesnake solutions in arizona in some parts of the valley where he uh, he works they pit tag snakes and they look to see if they're coming back or not it doesn't seem that they're coming back very much at all so it does seem Mm -hmm. like a really good management solution for the very serious situation of a rattlesnake being in someone's yard yeah. We'd like to think that we can just be like, no, look, it doesn't want to bite you. It's fine. Just admire it. But that is just not the way that most people mm-hmm. feel about rattlesnakes. And mm-hmm. it's not safe. I mean, with people who have dogs, people who have little kids, you can't do that. It's not an option. Yeah. And then I think also the hobbyist portion of the community, we're fighting really hard against free handling of venomous snakes, obviously. Um, but 
with the rise of social media, TikTok specifically, and YouTube, you're seeing this kind of like fearless, usually macho man mentality of, oh, just pick it up by its tail. It can't hurt you. Even, you know, not to speak ill of his name, Steve Irwin was a phenomenal representation and inspiration for a lot of herpers, but you can look back on some of his, his work and it wasn't the most safe. And you don't want that to be the, the representation that the everyday person is getting of rattlesnakes. Absolutely. I couldn't agree with you more. I, and I mean, it, you know, honestly, the free handling and stuff that we see is, is one thing, but then on the other hand, I think that the, that those are to a certain extent, somewhat niche, you know, people mm-hmm. are going mm-hmm. to those YouTube channels, kids are watching them. But when we think about the mainstream representation of rattlesnakes, it is like rearing up, rattling, <laughs> striking, which mm-hmm. let me tell you, rattlesnakes don't do that no not unless you're really pissing them off yeah you harass the hell out of them poke Mm -hmm. you poke them with a stick like (laughs) yeah i always tell people that if rattlesnakes were shown on you know animal planet or discover channel how they actually are then nobody would watch because it'd be boring because they just sit there in a little pile that's that is how it is with all my pet snakes everyone thinks they're so scary and then they come over and they don't do anything like i said i mainly keep morelia it's green tree pythons yeah. They never move. They, yeah. they never move. I don't. Yeah. So I think that's just prevalent across the board. <laughs> I know. So with this central coast, I keep, I don't know why I keep tripping up with that central coast snake services organization, um, business that you started, you started it with your partner, right? That's right. Yeah. Steve is my partner and he's an engineer. So he's the builder guy. Mm-hmm. He does the I do the design and he does the installation. I help him, but he does a lot of the muscle work for the installation of rattlesnake proof fencing, which we do at people's mm-hmm. houses, mm-hmm. Um, which is really only appropriate for people who are getting lots of rattlesnakes in their yard. It's just mm-hmm. a, kind of a serious problem for them. Um, and then Steve also does some relocations for me when I'm, when I'm busy. So he's really learned about the world of rattlesnakes through me. He wasn't a herper. Mm-hmm. When, although he did have two herp tattoos when we met. 12 years ago so hmm, okay he knew he was a good guy so it's like you're like we can we can finagle it <laughs> yeah he used and he used the term ovo viviparous on our first date and he didn't plan it you could tell and i was like who are you okay so you? <laughs> if, if justin smith is listening he will make fun of me ovo viviparity is my absolute favorite topic of science <laughs> across everything so when i was um an undergrad, I took two classes at the Cincinnati Zoo taught by, um, one of them was taught by the assistant curator or the curator. I can't remember his official title, sorry. Um, and we had like literally one slide about oviviviparity and it's stuck in my head and I cannot get enough of it. And I, <sighs> I don't understand it. I know that there's like doubts of whether it's actually real or not in certain species. And it's just like, I just, that, if I could go back to school and study, it would just be that one topic. Honest oh, to God. I love it. It's like the most interesting thing ever, but yeah, that's definitely a keeper, but you know, not to harp on it too much, but I'm just curious, what was his reaction when you did introduce yourself and you're like, Hey, like my job is to work with venomous snakes all the time. And I really like snakes and we're going to have two pet rattlesnakes and do all oh, this other stuff in our free time. <laughs> Yeah. Um, I, mean, I think he thought it was really cool. So we met, we met online. So we chatted online quite a bit before we ever met in person and mm-hmm. he knew I was a biology professor. He knew I studied snakes and oh, there's my dog again. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and so this was long before the company though. So as far as he was concerned, my, my work with snakes was 
doing research on field trips that he got to tag along and see cool wildlife, which he he's really into. He's an adventurous kind of guy. Mm-hmm. And then slowly over time, got it. You know, it was, I met him twelve years ago. So now, only in the past year and a half have we started this business. And uh, while it was all my idea to get started on it, he's been a really essential support, especially with the fencing. I could never do it without him. Not in a million yeah. years. So yeah, he's his engineering mind and my what snakes do mind come together for the perfect perfect solutions to people's yard problems with rattlesnakes. So we're pretty proud of that. So can you tell me a little bit more about this rattlesnake fencing? What, I mean, obviously you don't have to give away any trade secrets, but how do you make a fence rattlesnake proof? It's really, really hard. So we actually um, learned a lot from talking with our colleagues at Rattlesnake Solutions in Arizona. They're pretty much the leaders in figuring out this technology. They did a lot of the uh, testing and the trial and error that now a lot of us enjoy not having to do ourselves. And they're very, mm-hmm. very, very generous with their methods because they, like us, truly want to help people coexist with rattlesnakes. Mm-hmm. They're not interested in, you know, like, why would they, they're, they're super generous. They refer people in California who call them to me and it's really great. So um, it basically involves using quarter inch hardware cloth to block the rattlesnakes because the openings in those are enough to where you can still see through the fence, but you is the baby rattlesnakes cannot get through them in some cases Hmm. you have to trench it into the ground um it has to be at least three feet above ground and then honestly the tricks is making it look nice and is reinforcing gates that have to remain functional yeah open and close i didn't even think of that Mm -hmm. oh the gates are the hardest part dominique like so steve and i did a property this weekend and we had to do three gates and then about 200 feet of fencing and the gates are by far the most complicated because Mm -hmm. They have to be what we call snake tight, which is this nebulous thing, meaning that when I look at it and we mess with it, that means I can tell a baby rattlesnake wouldn't get through. Mm-hmm. This is not something that a contractor can do. It has to be a snake expert. It just has to be. Yeah, you have to be very specialized. <laughs> well, yeah, because it's not like you're producing a gate and installing it. You're taking an existing gate and you're altering it. So you have to have that snake sense, I call it, to be able to know what's going to happen. Um, mm-hmm. So it's it's incredibly demanding work. It's really labor intensive. It's really difficult. It's really hot right now. So yeah, a long, hot weekend, but we're so happy to help people. Our client yesterday, for example, was a, a woman who has two little chihuahuas and then she has cats that are not outdoor cats, but they have one of those mesh outdoor cat. Oh, a catio. A catio. catio. Thank you. You know what? I was trying to figure out what that was called. It has a catio. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And two <laughs> weeks ago, she called me, she called me freaking out because uh, there was a rattlesnake inside the catio and it had bitten one of her, one of her Siamese cats. Oh my God. Was the cat okay? So the cat was okay. She took it to the ER and actually it had a, um, it was a clinical trial of a new anti-venom for cats. I thought that was fascinating. Oh, I hadn't heard about that. That's very fascinating. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it did recover, but then she said, you know what? I need my yard back. She's found so many rattlesnakes there in recent months that you know, since April, I think she's found like three of them. Wow. So now yesterday at the end of the day, we said, take your dogs outside. We now can just do what you want in your yard. Mm-hmm. Your, your snake's safe. And do you do a full sweep of the yard before you put in the fencing to make sure that you're not trapping anything in? Yeah, we do it a couple of times. We do it at the beginning and then we do it at the end too. And in, in most properties, we're able to look, you know, and be pretty sure in some properties that are a little bit bigger or that have a lot of uh, rodent burrows or that sort of thing. We, we prepare the owner by saying, look, we put this in, but now you need to be vigilant because even we can't, there's no way we could tell if there's not a snake like way deep underground or something. We need to be vigilant for the next few months and call us if you see anything. No one has found a snake yet. Mm-hmm. Um, part of it also though is that we won't put snake fencing in a place that we don't think is a good candidate for it. If we if we cannot rattlesnake prove it, we won't do it. Mm-hmm. So I was actually out doing an estimate today and there was a guy who literally 
wanted a $40,000 snake fence that went around like this multi-acre property. <laughs> I said, no, I can't. I can't do this yeah. because there's no way that this can remain snake proof. There's a road yeah. that's going to burrow under it. There's going to be a mm. problem. So I had to talk him out of it. And at that point too, does a scientist and you kind of come out and it's like, well, the snakes probably live here if you have multiple acres. And then you have to think like ethically, is it right to move them away? You know, it's a really good question because I hadn't even really thought of that because it's so impractical to do it anyway, that it never yeah. even my mind. Like I just refuse to do it. If, if it's more than an acre is the maximum I would do. And that would even be a lot. So usually we're talking normal houses, half acre, quarter acre lots. Mm -hmm. Those are yeah. defensible spaces. People who live on property, what I advise them is to create a small yard around their house that we can rattlesnake proof. And then when they go outside of there, they're in the snake's house. They need to wear their boots. They need to watch where they're stepping. They need to make mm -hmm. sure their dogs are aversion trained because you just can't rattlesnake proof. And maybe you're right, nor should you a much larger area. It's not practical and certainly possibly is not ethical either. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, that's so interesting. Do you, and I, I know you've posted a few things where you've had to get rattlesnakes out of fencing and out of, you know, um, potentially like wire or get, get trap places. How do you do that safely while manipulating the animal without getting bit? Yeah. So that is indeed the, the tricky thing always with a lot of patience. So the there's a lot of people in our community who, who can and do deal with rattlesnakes in their yards themselves. So a lot mm -hmm. of people, we, you know, we sell the equipment that they can re relocate the rattlesnakes themselves. People are allowed to do, to do that legally, but now mm -hmm. and then we'll get a call from someone who's like, look, I, I need your help with this because it'll be a rattlesnake caught in bird netting. And yes, that's frankly, what it was, like, bird netting. we're the only one, we're the only ones who can do that. So, um, we, in that case, we, <laughs> we do it very carefully. So, we usually put a bucket over the top of the snake and then weigh that down so that we can cut around the netting just to free it to begin with. Mm -hmm. And then we'll take the animal back to um, my <laughs> laboratory at home, which is my kitchen <laughs> table. And usually we have to actually anesthetize the snake. So we'll have to tube the snake, anesthetize it so that it won't, you know, bite us as we are struggling to free it. Mm -hmm. And sometimes if the netting has dug into the snake's flesh enough, we may need to suture it up to give it some antibiotics. And then give it some water is a really important thing because the snakes struggle a lot in the sun. So give it a couple right. of days of water and healing before we let it go. And so we've been successful with that. I've, I've gotten lots of gopher snakes out of netting and then mm -hmm. a few rattlesnakes recently, which I love it. It's exciting because it's a yeah, I can, it's, it's like an that, adrenaline rush a little bit. Mm -hmm. It is. And I know that it's something that really only I can do. So I'm really helping this animal out. And I'm also helping these people with who've got the suffering animal on their property. And then mm -hmm. I tell them throw away all your bird netting, burn it. <laughs> Don't use what, bird netting. What is bird netting? Does that go over it's, trees? Well, it goes, um, usually people put it over their, their vegetables that are growing and their grapes or their, you know, wineries mm -hmm. use it a lot here in California so that the birds can't get at the fruit. So mm -hmm. it's just this really fine black netting that mm -hmm. is a little stretchy, but not enough. And animals get, get it and get caught. By the way, there was like a dead bird also caught in the recent debacle with the rattlesnake. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, some people put it up under the eaves of their home to prevent swallows from nesting up there. Okay. Mm -hmm. And usually in California, that's fine because we don't have snakes that climb that much. Mm -hmm. Although out where you are, you would get rat snakes caught in it all the time. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Climb everywhere. We get rat snakes. I, and like I said, I work with the rescue. I get at least, I mean, it's that time of year where I get the, there's a python in my front yard and I'm like, send me a picture. Yeah. Black rat snake or gray rat snake or whatever the heck. Yes. Um, but that was something I was going to ask you is, is do you often get calls to rattlesnakes where it's not a rattlesnake? Mm -hmm. Sure. I would say about maybe 30% of calls this year that 
people say it's a rattlesnake or actually a gopher snake, which, mm-hmm. you know, I have to always remember that when I was first learning, it took me a little while to turn, tell the difference. Mm-hmm. For it's sure. a big bodied snake and you don't want to get too close. So exactly. And, um, and, and gopher snakes like to shake their tails. Many mm-hmm. snakes do gopher snakes do a pretty good job of it. They, they can hiss, they can spread their head. So it looks like it's, you know, triangle shaped. Um, but we just have so many rattlesnakes here on the central coast that mm-hmm. it's, more often than not, it actually is a rattlesnake. But I do ask people to send me photos first. I say send Good. me photos so that I can tell. Or if they tell me it's coiled up, if it's coiled up, it's almost always a rattlesnake because other snakes don't really do that. Mm-hmm. There's ways we can figure it out. But I always mm-hmm. like a picture anyway because sometimes it'll be a toy rattlesnake. <laughs> 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 that has happened before. I, I mean, like, that's. I don't get it, but. I love that because I have a bumper sticker on the. I have, a, of course, my mini fridge full of frozen mice sitting next to me. Um, and I have a sticker that says, I break for snakes and sticks and ropes and anything else that looks like a snake. <laughs> totally. <laughs> yeah, Even in the just... middle of the winter, it doesn't matter. It's just. You don't whatever. know. It could be. It yeah. <laughs> and then when you yeah. actually find one, you're like, holy shit, I did it. <laughs> I know. Uh-huh. Oh my gosh. Um, so I think I really want to transition to talk about your research on female herpetologists. I swear to God, I could talk to you about this rattlesnake and I could ask you all my stupid questions like a million times over. The reason I first heard of you was because of your Squamates episode where you discussed a research project you were doing with a few, um, was it postgraduate students, undergraduate students? Undergraduates, yes. A few undergraduate students on identifying female herpetologists in published works. Is that correct? Is that a, a good, decent summary? Well, yeah, I would say that we were trying to estimate the numbers of female versus male authors in mm-hmm. okay. herpetology but you know as a function of the study animal and then also other things like how likely they were to collaborate and so on yes mm-hmm. so what was it that I mean I can take a guess of what it was that got you to be interested in this topic because like I mentioned earlier I studied information systems in, in college I'm very used to being like a woman in a male-dominated career path in a male-dominated mm-hmm. field um So it seems to be like, that's something that you just kind of get used to, but what was it that in the last few years you made the conscious decision to address or to study? What was that change? It was the same thing it always is, which is the interest of a particular student. So in this Mm -hmm. case, it was an undergraduate named Katie Rock, who was a, she started doing research in my lab as a freshman. And -hmm. then when she was a junior, she's also a women and gender study minor in a biology major mm-hmm. so we were was she on the about... squad mates episode yes she was yeah I remember because I was listening and I was like oh my god I'm so jealous to be at a to be at a herpetological symposium in New Zealand oh yes like what the hell can you talk about a better place to have that <laughs> I know it was so incredible that we're... so yeah we got to present this research at the world congress of herpetology which was in New Zealand right before the pandemic so this was in January 2020 mm-hmm. and we did this massive fundraising with Cal Poly crowdfunding and mm-hmm. we're able to fund five students and me to go on this very expensive trip to be able to present wow. this work. And it was the greatest place to do it because so many, it was preliminary at that point. And that's when we talked to the, the squamates guys. Mm-hmm. And at that point we got so many questions and input from people that we were able to really go back and do a strong analysis. And that work is now published in Herpetologica. It was the March, 2021 um, issue. And it was on the cover too. They featured female herpetologists from all over the world on the cover and 
just really proud of that paper. It was a lot of work and it, it showed some really cool trends if you want to hear some of the results. Yeah, please. So I, um, I did look into it obviously. Um, but I did kind of just do your general reading of your overview rather than getting into it because I wanted to hear more about it from you. So, um, I'd love to know what your original hypothesis was, what you were expecting to see, and then the surprises that you saw that came from it. Yeah. And it really was surprises. So part of the reason that when Katie and I started talking about this, part of the reason she became interested was I said, you know, it seems to me like snake researchers are more, are mostly men. Um, well I said all herpetology is male dominated, but it seems Mm -hmm. like it's even more so in like snakes. Mm -hmm. Whereas in lizards, I feel like there's proportionately more women than there are in studying snakes. Mm -hmm. And I'll tell you, I think it's very similar in private keeping as well. Oh, I think you're when right. You... In fact, I've gotten some questions about, about this from everything from private keeping to, you know, like science journalism and so on. I, th- I think mm-hmm. you're right. Right. Um, yeah. Especially with we... the, the gecko species, the bearded dragons, those have a tendency to be like very female dominated as far as yeah. breeders. But then you get into like things I keep like Morelia, bald pythons. There are women there, but they're outnumbered 10 to one. <laughs> Yeah, I think you're right. And we have this kind of sociological type hypothesis, which is about what attracts women to certain study organisms mm-hmm. and the idea that, or, and what attracts men. And th- remember that these are like very broad, hypothetical, binary, like things that are mm-hmm. not going to apply to any one person, but they were idea is like, right. there's all this research showing that men have higher risk-taking that they may be attracted to danger more Mm -hmm. and the question is I have no idea if that's actually true but does it play out in the data so that's why that's what we wanted to look at we our hypotheses were that the field of herpetology was going to be in general male dominated but that that gender gap was going to be shrinking over the years so we looked at this time effect to see Mm -hmm. that more and more and more women were becoming herpetologists and publishing because remember Mm -hmm. publications is really showing kind of the final product the impact of the work like Mm -hmm. it exists once it's finally published and so in other words um things like publications are what help to get people jobs and to get people tenure and so they're really a a good way to measure representation of women in the field is publications Mm -hmm. and also because we could use their names on publications with an algorithm to estimate binary sex and so i actually Mm -hmm. want to say right at the outset with our methods that our methods are fundamentally problematic because of two reasons. First of all, they assume binary sex, which is of course totally not the way mm-hmm. that the world works. Right. Um, and that's because the reason we did that is that our methods was we developed a computer algorithm that we compared the names to the US baby names database, which has um, you know millions and millions and millions of people born in the United States, including immigrants. So we have names from all different nationalities for mm-hmm. many, many, many years. And then unfortunately there's binary sex, male, female, which is the assigned sex at birth, which has nothing to do with gender identity. There's no right. other way to get those data for mm-hmm. when we're going back 50 years, like we were. So we mm-hmm. made a big stink of it in the paper. Like, Hey, this is just estimates. We're not, you know, gendering any one person. Mm-hmm. We only used names for which we had a greater 95% probability of being correct and so on. Mm-hmm. But I still think it's, a, I still think it is a big limitation of the work is um, on the one hand, we were, we, we only could, you know, do this male and female binary sex idea. But on the other hand, we actually had the opportunity, Dominique, to talk about that in our paper, which was read by all these people, mm-hmm. including a lot of like older herpetologists who may not have even known that there was a difference between gender identity and sex. So it was, it yes. was a great opportunity to actually introduce people to that problem, even though we yes. were kind of violating some of those. And I think so, that's, um, I think that's yeah. really great. So I'm just going to interrupt for a second because yeah. 
the people who know me, um, I am a big proponent of getting people in the LGBTQ community into the hobby, people who fall on that non-binary scale into the hobby, trans identifying people and such. Um, so I think it's kind of, it's very refreshing to see a professional discussing it as well. And I don't, I don't mean to say this in a rude way, so please don't take it in this way, but to see someone who is older and farther into their career discussing it, as opposed to this is a conversations that people my age are having, but you don't necessarily see in the generations above us. And you're not that much older than me, but you are like, would be a professor to someone my age. (laughs) So I think, um, I commend you for that. And then I also commend you for instilling that into your students as well. So thank you. Oh, absolutely. It's super important. I mean, I teach a class called biology of sex, where not only do I teach this to non-major, hundreds of non-majors every year, talk about things like gender identity and, um, you know, sexual orientation and all these different things. But I learn every year more and more, because as you know, it's a, it's a dynamic, it's a dynamic issue, Mm -hmm. cultural, social, biological, and it's changing all the time. And I need to stay up on it and and learn about it. And so, um, yeah, we, but our results were pretty cool though. They, they basically showed that, um, our hypothesis was both supported. And then in some ways we were surprised by some of the things we saw that we weren't expecting. So mm-hmm. it was supported in the sense that if we, 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 what we did was we actually quantified all papers in herpetology as in all of them. There was hundreds of thousands of them, mm-hmm. um, in the past 10 years. So that was from 2010 to 2019. Wow. And we broke them up by the seven orders of herpetology. So the three mm-hmm. orders of amphibians, which are the Sicilians, the frogs and toads and the salamanders, mm-hmm. and then the four orders of reptiles, which are the tuatara, the turtles, the alligators and crocodiles, and then the squamate reptiles or the lizards, snakes, and amphibians. Mm-hmm. And we showed that in each of those groups, even just from 2010 to 2019, there was a huge increase in the proportion of female authors. It basically started out in the, um, what was it by that year? It was probably maybe one in five was a woman and it ended up at just 10 years later being one in three. So about, wow. so right, right around now we have about 30% female authorship. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's right. Risen a lot. And then we also went back 50 years for a specific groups that we were interested in, which was the squamates, the lizards and snakes specifically, mm-hmm. because we wanted to look and see if our hypothesis about snakes versus lizards was correct. Mm-hmm. So we actually went back 50 years on those, which was a lot of work because yeah. the author's first names are not included on papers for the most part in mm-hmm. older articles. And so it was just the initial. So we had to actually go and find those manually for thousands and thousands oh of papers. God. That's where all the work was. I know. <laughs> And um, in those, so we got to go back and the, nu- the numbers are incredible. It's about, in the 1970, it was literally about four or 5% women is all. Wow. wow. Look at that increase. Exactly what, yeah, I know. Yeah. This matches exactly what our, you know, herpetologist colleagues who are, who are older tell us. They say, yeah, the conferences, it used to be like one woman and a hundred men. Mm-hmm. And now look, it's changing so much. Now it's about 50, 50 at the conferences. And then we see this a little bit of lagging with the publication rate, but it's getting up there. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. We found that the groups that were had the biggest gender gap were mm-hmm. the squamates. So lizards mm-hmm. and snakes still have more like proportionally more men than women and the crocodilians. So hmm. lots more, very, very mild male, male bias. So in that way, it supports our hypothesis. Like these kind of considered dangerous animals may attract more men than women mm-hmm. or 
maybe less gatekeeping <laughs> to allow more women in, depending on how you want to think about it. But mm-hmm. then within within the amphibians, the Sicilians were the most male dominated. It was very male dominated. And I have no that idea doesn't that surprise is. me. Oh, really? Uh, yeah. Oh, really? So Sicilians are like a, once again, just like a revival parody, a strange, like, thing little worm in my brain that makes me think about them constantly and i'm in a sicilian keepers group because i would really like to privately keep them but i cannot find them anywhere and it's a worldwide group with about 200 people in it and i think there's Uh like only a handful of women so i look at it why okay do you want to hear something super juvenile it's a phallic animal and Ah! i think (laughs) i really do think like like snakes too yeah, I mean, I know that sounds so juvenile, but you think about it and then think about other things that have more phallic imagery. They have a tendency to skew more towards men. Like think about cigars and smoking and all these things that historically, especially in literature, are associated with phallic imagery tend to swing towards male interest as much as they don't want to admit it. And so in my head, that's kind of my hypothesis around Sicilians, but I have literally no idea. Well, I mean, you know what? That's a good hypothesis. I kind of wish we put that in the paper. It would have been fun. Um, you can add a little we didn't really have much of an idea yeah we didn't have much of an idea we we had you know certain things like possibly because there's well first of all there's so little research on sicilians it's important that the sample size is really small it's important to, to recognize that mm-hmm. but we thought that possibly because they tend to occur in tropical countries where the mm-hmm. gender gap is more pronounced than it yeah. is in in like the united states for example that maybe that was part of it um honestly there was this you know how sometimes the older herpetologists say on the one hand, they're not, um, they might use language that may be sometimes a little bit offensive, but on the other hand, they're from their point of view, telling it like it is, they don't have a filter. Yes. So yeah, I work in construction. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, yeah. <laughs> so it's kind of good and it's kind of bad. Well, there was this one uh, male herpetologist, an older male herpetologist at the world Congress who, when we showed the, the Sicilian data, he said, well, women don't want to get dirty. They don't want to dig for the pastoral animals. And we, and we said, Exc- excuse, what do, you, what do you mean? What do you mean? And he said, well, I mean, he said, no, I mean, back in the sixties when I was a biologist, like the women would not go and get dirty. That was, and so to him, it was clear that that was why. Yeah. Whereas to me now, I don't see that at all mm-hmm. with, as a difference between male and female herpetologists. So I thought that was really interesting. Lots of see, possible and then, ideas. And then I hear him say that and in my head, and mind you, not scientific, but my thought goes to, well, were men telling the women they shouldn't get dirty and not allowing them, you know? Of course. Oh and my who God. knows? I mean, I've, I have talked actually to a number of older women herpetologists, you know, in their seventies and eighties now who were those pioneers. They were the ones who were one of the only ones at the conference, conferences mm-hmm. back then and asked them what it was like. And, you know, they, they, the ones who are still herpetologists seem to be the ones that did break the rules, whatever, whoever made those rules. I don't know, but they were the ones who did get dirty. They were the ones who, mm-hmm. who did do the work just like the guys would and kind of break some of those early gender stereotypes. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Mm, gosh, I love that. Okay. So they said that in the 1970s, which is, you mentioned this on Squamates on the podcast, but when I hear you did like 50 years of research, I'm like, oh, the 1930s. No, it's 1970s. Like, like that's like, for that being 50 years ago, um, did you have any desire to go further back um, and, and look? And is that like a plan that you have? Yeah, no, not after the, <laughs> the difficulty. Oh my God, my dog is literally panting against the computer now and it's tapping. <laughs> my God, she's this is an animal podcast. It's totally <laughs> fine. 
No, I mean, so we, we tried to come up with that kind of a round number. It was, it was 2019 when we were doing this and we thought, okay, we're going to be able to get this whole decade. So this has been a big transformational decade. Things have changed a lot. Um, and then we thought, well, let's go back 50 total years. And just doing that was so traumatic. The amount of work it was, I wasn't expecting it because Dominique, mm-hmm. Dominique, I did not know that there weren't going to be names. I thought that the names would be associated, but they weren't database. So even if they were on the paper, which they usually Mm -hmm. weren't, it was usually just initials on the paper, but even if they were written on the paper, they wouldn't be indexed until usually in the two thousands is when people started to index the first names. So the amount of work that we had to do to go back and get those hundreds of thousands of names, can you even imagine? Mm -hmm. Um, After the first month or two, I was like, all right, what are we we done with this? And so there's no going back for that. Um, however, so did you, that, sorry, did you end up indexing the names and like making a, a database for future researchers to use? Um, yes and no. We've struggled with that a little bit mm-hmm. because the first thing is that remember that the, we, you know, we, we got some of the names, but we only got some of the names, right? Which is another reason why this is an estimate. The second thing is that in our algorithm, we do, you know, gender individual people. Mm-hmm as part of it, but then we take it as a conglomerate, as an estimate, you know, throwing mm-hmm. out certain data points and stuff like that. So we, in our supplemental data, we published the summary data, but not the individual, because we're talking about people and mm-hmm. assigning the sex to some individual person and then putting that out in the public may not be ethical. Mm-hmm. So it's not something that we did for that reason. That yeah, said, um, yeah, that said, I think that the that some researchers have asked us for subsets of the data that we're willing to share mm-hmm. in, you know, as long as people are willing to not publish them, not publish the data. Um, mm-hmm. But that's also something we would be willing to reconsider too, if after thinking about it, we did it to err on the side of safety. So if there was ever a reason to share that data or to re- revisit it, we, it's not like we want to hide it. It's just, we want to be really careful about the ethics of using that data publicly. Yeah, absolutely. Makes sense. Yeah. Um, and then my other question, and this was something that I don't fully understand, so I'd love for you to explain it more. Um, I know that there is some sort of hierarchy when it comes into how people are named on a research paper or on a publication. So if you have six or seven people writing, or excuse me, named on a research paper, um, who are you looking for as the primary? And then are you cataloging everyone on that? Or are you just looking at the primary author? So I think this is one of the most important things that came out of our study arises from my answer to that question. So first of all, if you look at a scientific article and there's a string of authors on it, the two main players, so to speak, depending on how you want to look at it, it's going to be the first author. The first Mm -hmm. author is usually the person who did most of the work. So this is usually the student or the postdoc or the young researcher who is the one who collected most of the data and analyzed those. Mm -hmm. Um, The last person is most often the advisor. So... Mm -hmm someone like me right now, I'm always last author of my papers with my students. Mm-hmm. And then the people in the middle are the collaborators who did work on the project, but maybe didn't do all the work and then weren't the one who kind of sponsored the research in their lab. Mm-hmm. So the position of first author and last author are really prominent because those are what things that we might, might expect to be associated with certain things like, um, so do papers that are first authored by a woman um, are those papers more likely to be cited? Time cited is like a measure of how popular, how important the paper is. Mm-hmm. Um, or conversely, if the last author is a female and that's like a female principal investigator, 
Mm-hmm. Does she produce research with her students that is more likely to be cited? These are the kind of questions that we had. And what we found was pretty fascinating. We found a few, few different things. We found that in the past 10 years, um, papers that were first authored by a woman were cited more. They were cited more, hmm. meaning female students are doing the work that is deemed to be most important in terms of the impact in the field. Mm-hmm. Um, but those papers tended to be last authored by a male. So these tended to be occurring in the laboratory of a male professor. Mm-hmm. So I want you to think about the sort of general idea about kind of a hotshot young female graduate student or postdoc or new investigator who's working with this established prolific male professor. Those mm-hmm. are the papers that tend to be cited the most often. Um, and the other thing that was really interesting is that the papers that were first or last authored by females, so either a female student, postdoc, mm-hmm. or female professor sponsoring it, were much, much, much more likely to include female co-authors in that middle group. Mm-hmm. So that was the one that got me, was mm-hmm. if, there, if there was a male in those positions, then they were very unlikely to publish along with females. Whereas if there was a female in those positions, they were extremely likely to publish with other females. So that was very That's, cool. It's uh, it very interesting. Female solidarity, right? That there's been Mm -hmm. other papers that have suggested that women are more collaborative than men. And again, Mm -hmm. please remember that we are being like broad strokes here. Any given person can break these rules. Mm -hmm. And ours really supported that. It really did. It showed that women are much more collaborative and maybe more likely to grant authorship to a student who played a junior role in a paper rather than just acknowledging them in the acknowledgements. More women are more likely to say, you actually deserve to be an author on this. Hmm. That's very fascinating. I mean, it, it makes sense. Cause, but to actually know scientifically that's what you're saying is very fascinating. Um, so what what do you think are the goals that you would like to come out of this study? Well, I think that the, the paper was pretty popular, you know, featured on the cover of Herpetologica because mm-hmm. we're at this crossroads right now. Uh, a few years before the paper came out, there was a symposium at the joint meeting of ichthyologists and herpetologists on women in herpetology, mm-hmm. where um, after the Me Too movement, there was a lot of um, stories that came out of women's mouths in our field, talking about ways that people have been discriminated in the past. Um, we had an event at a conference a few years ago, an incident, I should say, in which a prominent male herpetologist who has actually since passed away, um, Dick Vote, was um, potentially called out for showing inappropriate images of women in doing research mm-hmm. in his laboratory. And that sparked a lot of conversation about women mm-hmm. in our field and this was a way for us to kind of piggyback on that momentum of that movement in our field, which is continuing. It's not like it's all over and done. There's still a lot of um, discrimination that women face. And this mm-hmm. is a way of showing where we are right now and where we should be moving towards. So given that I go to conferences and there's 50% graduate students, why do we still see those numbers drop off for professors? Why is it that, and this is across biological sciences, but mm-hmm herpetology is no no different why do we see that fewer women are getting jobs than men is it because they're choosing why are they choosing is it because they're not getting those jobs why are they not getting those jobs Mm -hmm. and then furthermore things like uh, tenure and promotion those things are based on publications so in what ways are we seeing that that gender gap is changing and much more interesting than how does it relate to study animal I think is just how it's changing so rapidly so Dominique, in the past 20 years is where we've seen the, just a huge acceleration in women authorship. It was mm-hmm. pretty stagnant from 1970 till about 2000, and then it shot up hmm. after 2000. Do you so have any idea why? I do. I think it has to do with a couple of different things. So when I was a, okay, so this is actually fun, a fun thing. Uh, I've never mentioned this before. It's my first time to mention this to anyone. Ooh, an exclusive. <laughs> my 
it's it's it is exactly the 20 year anniversary of my very first publication in her ever when I was an congratulations and, yes thank you that was in summer 2001 and it was a paper in Copia and it was a sole authored paper that I did on my undergraduate research mm-hmm. in um on the Baja California rattlesnake and back then you would publish sole author papers people would just do the work and publish it themselves I, my advisor wasn't even on my paper he didn't want to be it was, mm-hmm. my, it was my work he said well that tide has completely changed now and the culture of science in general has um, changed to be much more inclusive and to include people as authors. Mm-hmm. And so I just now published exactly 20 years after my first paper, I published my 50th paper ever. And it was on wow. this string, string of like a ton of herpetologists from all over the world, from, you know, men, women, everything. So mm-hmm. it's really exciting to see that those changes have occurred. And I think that, um, what we're seeing then is because men, oh, we also, we also did quantify sole authored papers and found that men were much more likely back then and even now to continue to publish sole author papers, whereas women are going to be the ones who are more collaborative. Mm-hmm. So I think that mm-hmm. that's one of the main things that we're seeing is this culture of shifting and, and giving people authorship, even if they didn't analyze the data themselves, they were fundamental to collecting the data. They should be recognized for that. Right. And is there like an average number of authors that are on these papers? Yeah. And I don't have the number right in front of me. I could glean that from it, but it goes up every single year. So Mm -hmm. it went up, it went from like, it went from, I think maybe 1.5 as the average, because it would be like the student themselves or the professor themselves or the student and the professor Mm -hmm. uh, up to closer to probably five or six in the most recent years. And then some of them, of course, were 20 or more. Yeah. Um, and that do you think a lot of that has to do with the the technological tide we've seen in the last twenty years? Yeah, yeah, I think I think part of it is that 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 if someone's going to help you with building a specialized piece of equipment, or you know, like me taking my evaporimeter somewhere and helping someone use that, then I'm going to be an author on their papers. But I think it's more of just a seed change in the in the way that science is done is the recognition mm-hmm. that we should be more inclusive and that someone who is a paid research technician instead of what they used to say is, well, they were paid to be there, so they shouldn't be an author. But that just seems ridiculous to scientists now. Like, well, mm-hmm. and so that, therefore they, sh- they did the work, they should be an author. Yeah. So yeah. Just, I know. It <laughs> doesn't weird. make sense. That's like, oh, I paid you to make a piece of art. Don't put your name on it. It's like, no, you still made still the like art. It's still like that. It's still like that in many mm-hmm. fields, especially in um, government-sponsored research. So like um, hmm. the USGS, for example, the research technicians are very often not granted authorship on papers or certainly not first authorship, even if they've done most of the work. And the USGS, what is that? The United States Geological Survey. And I don't want to pick on them. They're just an, an mm-hmm. example of a government funded research body that yeah. um, has a lot of money to pay technicians to do a lot of the work. And then the senior scientists write it up. Well, in my personal opinion, there's no reason why all of those technicians should not also be authors on the paper because of the work they mm-hmm. did. Mm-hmm. So we're, we're running at, to the end of our time. So I have just a couple more questions for you and then we'll wrap up. My first question is, can you tell me a little bit about Project Rattlecams? Uh-huh. Yes, of course. So we are starting in the next couple of weeks. So probably by the time that you post this podcast, hopefully crossed, mm-hmm. uh, we will have launched publicly Project Rattlecam, which is a community science project on the Zooniverse post site, which um, consists of Thousands and thousands of time-lapse photos that we took at rattlesnake rookeries in Colorado where the mothers were gestating their young and then later on hanging out with their young, thermoregulating, drinking, rainwater, socializing, and so on. 
Mm -hmm. And we just need the community's help in being able to code these images, how many snakes are present, what are the snakes doing? And it is so fun because we have it in beta testing mode right now and it should be launching mm -hmm. any, any moment now. You get on there and a new photo will show up and it's a photo no one has ever seen before. And you answer a series of questions on it. Like, do you see any rattlesnakes? How big are they? They have a painted rattle to you know, help us mm -hmm. identify the snakes. And from all that, we'll be able to create a data set that we can go back and analyze for different things we're interested in, like how the snakes obtain water, mm -hmm. social behavior between mothers and babies. And we're just so excited about this because it is actually going to make these hard to reach snake dens accessible to anyone from around the world. Wow. And before, and my mentor, Dr. Harry Green, told me once, he said, you know, I feel, Emily, like if people could just go out and see these animals in the wild, then it would change their minds about them because they mm -hmm. wouldn't be like an animal planet where they're all striking and where they've mm -hmm. been provoked. Instead, we'd see that these are these are mothers that are hanging out with their babies. Rattlesnake mothers are, are such good mothers. These little cute little rattlesnake pups just burned <laughs> up like little cuties. And people, people invariably, when they do get to see that, like when I go rescue rattlesnakes from people's houses, like, mm -hmm. oh, look, it's just, it, it's just trying to get away from you. And it, it really does change their mind. Mm -hmm. And we think that this is going to be a way that we can actually bring people to these rookeries, to these dens without actually bringing them there. Because if you bring yeah. people there, you know, they might come and ruin them or, they might, <laughs> yeah. or and, and furthermore a lot of people can't make it up there um mm -hmm. there's accessibility issues for everything from people with disabilities to people who live in other countries and so on so we're going to be bringing rattlesnakes to people to help us with the work and we're just so excited about it awesome and i'll make sure to um if it is live by the time this goes out I will link it in the description of this podcast. If it's not, I will make sure to add it in later and then add it on our social media and such. Definitely. I'm very yeah, excited. Yeah. Definitely yeah, tag definitely. us, tag yeah. us for at, at, at Rattlecams. And then of course my um, my company is at Coast Snake. And then my personal is at Snakey Mama. Yes. And we'll definitely, I will include all of those. Um, just the very last thing I wanted to ask you is if you heard of a, a younger woman um, looking to get into reptiles or getting into studying biology, what advice do you have for them? My advice is uh, always to ask, 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 ask. So opportunities come to those who ask. Mm -hmm. It's unfortunate, but it's the reality. Mm -hmm. So I always tell young students, go find a mentor who you like. It could be an, a female mentor if you're most comfortable with that. Find mm -hmm. a mentor who you admire and ask them questions because there's nothing wrong that can come of, nothing bad can come of that. And in fact, an opportunity may fall in your lap. So yeah. what, what I think people don't understand when they're you know young students or young researchers is that I'm constantly getting um, jobs and internships funneled to me. My inbox mm -hmm. is full of my colleagues saying, Hey, do you have someone who could do this? Hey, do you have someone who could do that? And then mm -hmm. what's going to happen is that if a student has recently asked me for an opportunity, I'm going to, with my, you know, caffeine addled mind, you know, <laughs> absent-minded professor mind be like, Oh yeah, there was this one awesome student who did this and I'll hook them up. And the number of students who I've hooked up with internships and jobs and so on is just countless. And it's, mm -hmm. If, if there's a student who's sitting there loving reptiles, but I don't know about them, I'm never going to be able to do that. And that's right. why, I, yeah, go to office hours, uh, email your local herpetologist, ask to go out on a nature hike, you know, just 
keep asking people if it's if it's someone who's interested in herpetoculture ask if you can come over and see people's collections ask mm-hmm. if you can help volunteer cleaning cages or whatever just ask yeah ask, ask, ask opportunities. <laughs> yeah if anyone wants to volunteer them. let me know yes, clean. Know, yeah right? please <laughs> yeah sometimes you know a, a little bit of you don't even necessarily have to volunteer your time for free i mean most positions should be paid but just showing that at the beginning can lead to paid positions for people mm-hmm. And um, so asking for those things usually means you're going to increase dramatically the likelihood that the opportunities will come. And then those opportunities come and those can help inform whether it's something that you really do want to do, whether this world is something you do want to jump into, because it's a really beautiful world to be in, the world of reptiles and amphibians. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh, that's such an incredible way to end. Um, Dr. Taylor, Emily, thank you so much for your time. I am incredibly grateful. Um it's so great to see what you're doing and being able to follow you. So just give you, uh, give us a lineup of what your social media is again, where people can find you so that they can follow along with your awesome, uh, awesome work. Absolutely. So I'm at snakey mama on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And in particular, you should watch out for this July. I'm going to be running the pit viper beauty pageant on Twitter. Yes, I saw that. It's so fun. I can't wait. I can't wait. We did rattlesnake beauty pageant last July and it was so fun. So mm-hmm. definitely watch for that, that hashtag as well. Pit Viper beauty pageant. Mm-hmm. And then, um, you can follow my business at coast snake also on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And then finally, I would encourage you to follow at Rattlecams on those three social medias as well to learn about our Zooniverse project and maybe some upcoming other camera situations with rattlesnakes that I can't talk about yet. What a teaser. I love it. Well, (laughs) thank you so much, Emily, for your time. Um, Like I said, incredibly grateful. Such a pleasure and an honor to spend my evening uh, talking with you. Um, I think that having someone in your position, you know, talking to hobbyists is really important because then there needs to be an overlap between what we do, because at the end of the day, we're all in it for the love of herps and we should be working together to, to make it the, the best community possible to do that. So thank you so much. Agreed. Yeah. Thank, thank you. you for having me. It was really nice to meet you. And yes, uh, meet quote unquote. Yeah. Hopefully post COVID we'll be able to meet actual people in the, in the wild. <laughs> Um, but once again thank you everyone for listening this is the modern medusa podcast Um, please take a look at our social media mine is at defalco reptiles on facebook and instagram and you can follow the podcast at modern medusa podcast on instagram and check out our patreon so thank you so much and we'll talk at you next week thanks for listening 